Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, January 26th, we are studying Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Questions concerning who Jesus is, what he is doing, and where he gets his authority continue to swirl from Jesus' opponents and from his family. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. It is good to be with you. Let's talk context, Pastor Hemmer. We're at the end of Mark 3 this morning. What do we need to know going into the text we've got for today? So this is uh, it's, it's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it's, we're in a very uh, quickly moving section here uh, toward the beginning of, of Mark's account of the Gospel. Um, it's been very, well, as, as the whole Gospel is, it's very action-packed, uh, very action-intensive, um, and even, even Mark's use of sort of present-tense verbs uh, draws his reader into the action, um, Jesus now uh, is uh, interacting, well, uh, he'll, he'll come to his hometown. Um, he's had the 12 with him. We, we just named them uh, earlier in chapter 3. Um, and then as we begin with verse 20, uh, Jesus will return home. So um, he's, he's sort of been around the Sea of Galilee, um, and he's got a crowd from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, um, and from all around Tyre and Sidon. So he's he's become quite the the magnet for the crowds, and uh, the crowds are so big. As we uh, saw earlier in chapter three, the crowds are so big that Jesus needs to uh, teach from a boat, lest uh, there's no social distancing, no, no crowd control, apparently, lest the crowd press in on him to hear him and, and they be crushed. So there's this great crowd uh, following Jesus, hanging on his words, and, and he has his uh, apostles, the, the group of 12 closest to him, um, whom he will send out. Um, that's why they're called apostles. Um, he gathers them and then sends them. He gives them his authority to cast out demons, to heal, to preach in his name. Um, and that, that brings us right to the precipice of, of verse 20. And then as we move on after today's pericope, uh, Jesus will launch into a long series of parables, uh, that he's going to teach uh, beside the Sea of Galilee. Um, so we are we are at the end, sort of, of this of this section <clears throat> that will close some 
miracles and healing um, that will close this kind of description of Jesus' interaction with the crowds. Um, and then chapter 4 will, will be a, a longer section of catechesis that will be mostly just Jesus preaching and teaching before at the end of chapter 4 uh, you, you turn to the action, so to speak. So Jesus is going to come home in today's text. He's going to meet with some opposition there, which is what he had left earlier in chapter 3. We read now in Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That is the text for today, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Pastor Hammer, the text begins noting that Jesus has gone home. We've talked a little bit about that previously at the beginning of chapter 2. Jesus is at his home in Capernaum. Again, as you said, he's got this large crowd gathering, and this time Mark brings out his family. It's I don't know. I guess Mark has not actually said anything about Jesus' family up to this point, has he? With Mark's fast pace, this is the first mention we get of them in Mark's gospel, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and we get introduced to them uh, sort of gradually uh, in two phases here in our, our little pericope. We get just his family generally in verse 21, and then more specifically in verse 31, his mother and his brothers will be identified. And they're, they're definitely introduced in a, in a very negative light. Um, so he comes home, and, and, the, cr- and the crowd is still there, and they're, they're so desiring to hear his word, and the crowd is such that they can't even eat. Um, and this, this is uh, another phrase that Mark will use a couple times in the Gospel. Um, think about just later in, in chapter 6, where the crowd is, is so uh, enraptured with Jesus' teaching that they, uh, they have no leisure, no rest time in order to eat 
there. So this uh, is a common theme in Mark, that the crowd has, has been so caught up in the word, in, in seeking from Jesus healing and miracles and touching him, that they've neglected even basic bodily needs. Uh, and, and now it's also affecting Jesus and his apostles, right? So this is not a homecoming to any kind of home-cooked meal because Jesus' homecoming um, is quite disruptive to the, uh, the life of his family. So his family will intervene and sort of treat Jesus like the black sheep of the family, in a sense. When his family heard it, now it's not identified who exactly these family are, but some, some relations of Jesus, and, and they sort of want to save face. They want to defend the family's honor, um, and, and the way to do that is by taking Jesus down a peg. So his family intervenes, and they, they try to take him away from the crowd, scuttle him uh, you know, back into privacy, and they went out to seize him, saying he's out of his mind. So the question of Jesus' sanity, uh, his, um, the way in which he speaks the word of God, whether what he speaks is truly the word, um, his family has an answer, and they say, pay no attention to Jesus, he's out of his mind. This is not, not unlike what C.S. Lewis says are, are the three options we have to consider when it comes to Jesus, that he's, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, that is, the way in which he speaks about himself, the way in which he exercises authority, the way in which he, he teaches and speaks the word of God, either he's lying and he's not really God, but he's, he's you know, pulling off this ruse, pretending to be God, or he's not God but truly believes that he's God, in which case he's a lunatic, or he's right that he is, in fact, the incarnate second person of the Trinity and should, should be preaching and teaching the word with the authority that he does, in which case he, he's the Lord. So those, right, Lewis outlines those. I think that's in, in mere Christianity. Um, but here you, you see which camp Jesus' family falls into. They understand that Jesus, well, they understand that he believes uh, that he is different from others who, who preach and teach the word of God. Um, the, the crowd um, has reacted before uh, to Jesus' teaching. What is this? He teaches as one with authority. Um, how does he do these things? He even commands demons and they obey him. So his family, uh, they understand that, well, it seems like Jesus believes these things, but he's lost his mind. He's not, he's not in his right mind. The reaction. Yeah. Well, as you say, the the reaction of his family, as you're pointing out there, I really think goes to show that people recognized Jesus was claiming something about himself. That Jesus was, in fact, claiming to be 
something, to be someone, and people recognized it. And the fact that his family calls him a lunatic here is evidence of that, that people recognized that Jesus was claiming things about himself. Contrary to what some modern scholars might say that Jesus never claimed to be God, you see from the reactions that he gets that, yeah, he was claiming that. He was claiming this authority, and people recognize that. And so this matter of his family thinks he's a lunatic is evidence of that. And I I was actually thinking about C.S. Lewis and his three categories as you were talking, Pastor Hemmer, because I think you, and you may be going there, I don't want to steal your thunder if you are, but I think you see those three categories at play here in the text we've got. We've already seen lunatic with his family. I think we're going to see liar when it comes to the scribes as they try to connect Jesus to the devil and his work. And then I think you can see evidence of the confession of Jesus as Lord at the very end when Jesus points to those who are sitting around him and talks about those who do the will of God. So if you were going to go there, I won't, I won't take any more, but that's at least, I mean, I think you see those in this text. I don't know that, that Lewis drew it from this text, but I think you can see all three of them here. So Right, right. I think you're exactly right. And I mean, Lewis is just making an apologetic argument that there really is no other way. We can't we can't make the the modern or the historical critical move and say Jesus never believes himself to be God, yeah. um, or he never speaks of himself as God. Um, that that he clearly does, and and then what to do with that are these three things: either he's he knows that he's not God and he's lying, or he believes that he's God but he's not and he's a lunatic, or he's right and and speaks and teaches correctly, and then we ought take what he says with the authority um, with which he says it, because he is, in fact, the Lord. And, and you're right. I mean, we see all three of those right here. You see, you know, his family dismissive of him, um, don't pay any attention to him, and then you have the, uh, the scribes, uh, the other apparent experts in the Word, who want to say he's, he's not just uh, sort of an innocuous, crazy person who's lost his mind, but he's actually worse than that, and he's lying and deceiving you. Um, but then by the end, we come to realize that he is, in fact, the Lord. Noteworthy here that uh, th- this story, this little vignette of Jesus' family wanting to dismiss him as being out of his mind, proves that that maxim that familiarity breeds contempt. So those closest to Jesus, whom we would expect to be most accepting of his lordship, right? Um, He has this miraculous birth. His birth is attended by angels and, and shepherds confessing him to be the Lord. And he's worshipped by these uh, these Gentile wise men who come from afar. Nothing is ordinary about about his life. I mean, everything is ordinary in the way that he is uh, ordinarily born. He's a human being, fully human, and yet there's there's all these uh, attending details that that confess what is extraordinary, but. But his family is is too close to recognize Jesus' uniqueness. That their their familiarity with Jesus has has bred in them not just contempt but unbelief. One thing I, I think is worth pointing out here too, and you mentioned it, that Jesus' family 
gets introduced at the beginning of this account and then they come back at the end. This is one of the features that we'll see in the Gospel of Mark at various places where he will start an account, but he won't finish it. He'll put an intervening account in the middle and then he'll come back to finish that account. This is one of those examples where the family is introduced, but they kind of hang there for a moment while Mark tells you about the scribes and then his family comes back into view at the end of the text. Another another good example of that is coming up in chapter 5, where you've got Jairus and his daughter, and then that account gets broken up by the woman with the issue of blood before you finish that account. So that's one of those features, just to point out in the Gospel of Mark, that you will see him do sometimes, often to invite us to make comparisons and contrasts within those accounts that are put together like that. So... We've got the scribes who intervene now. The family is is there in the background, but we're, we're going to deal with them again later. Mark brings the scribes to the fore, these scribes who are from Jerusalem, and they're saying two things, that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul and that it is by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. The name Beelzebul is perhaps not the most familiar to us, Pastor Hemmer. What is the accusation that the scribes are making against Jesus? Yeah, so uh, Beelzebul um, is sort of a, a confession in and of itself. Um, it and it it would harken back to the the false worship of the Canaanites in the land before Israel, uh, before God brought His people into the Promised Land, and then also um, it would accuse the Israelites of their false worship. So um, it is. It, I mean it can be translated something like um, Baal is God or, or Baal is Lord. Um, and Baal would be, it's both a, a general word for uh, all the Baals, all the lords, all the false gods of the Canaanites, but it's also the, the proper name of, of one god within uh, the Canaanite uh, pantheon. So Baal, uh, Baal then um, is a is a particular uh, character in in those uh, in the stories of, of how those gods interact with human beings. Um, he's not the highest god, um, but so what what they're doing here is appropriating that phrase um, to accuse Jesus of driving out demons by some demonic authority. And actually what they say is, is even more pointed than that. They say he is possessed by Beelzebul, uh, the, the prince of demons. And maybe that's more um, precisely what that word means, Baal is prince. Um, so there's kind of a, a wordplay going on there as well. Um, but... It's not just that he's in league with Beelzebul, but that he is he is possessed by um, possessed by the devil. Instead of um, believing that that the Holy Spirit has come into Jesus, which happened back at his baptism, the Spirit descends upon him or into him. Jesus is, is possessed, in a sense, by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who in Mark 1, 12, uh, drives him out into the wilderness immediately following his baptism. So it's a question of which spirit 
possesses Jesus? Is he possessed by the Spirit of God, or is he possessed by the, the spirit of demons? So it's, it's a, a strong accusation to say that, that Jesus, not just that he sort of uses demonic powers, but instead that, that he is in fact possessed by um, Satan himself. That's, that's where Jesus will take it. He understands their accusation um, not to be accusing him of, of being in league with some lesser demon or, or something like that, um, but he takes it straight to the top. Um, if, if he's possessed by Satan, why would Satan undo the works of Satan? And that's, that's where Jesus will go with his answer in, in just a moment. Right. So Jesus responds to them beginning in verse 23. He calls these scribes to him and he begins to talk to them. I, I don't know that it's explicit in the text one way or the other. I re- remember back in Mark chapter 2 at the very beginning where the scribes are first introduced and they're thinking in their hearts that Jesus is blaspheming because he's forgiving sins. Here it does say they are saying, as if they're saying it vocally. I, I'm not sure if the the scene indicates that they're saying this to Jesus or they're saying this to others. Maybe they're spreading the word around town that this is the truth about Jesus. It, regardless of whether or not they're saying it directly to him or they're spreading the word, Jesus does bring them to him and begins to address them directly. And, and well, you're from... You're, you're a pastor in Illinois, so he, he quotes Abraham Lincoln here, it sounds like. <laughs> take, yeah, take, yeah. Us into, take us into the beginning. We've got about five minutes here before the break, Pastor Hammer. So start taking us into what Jesus' response is. Well, I think, I think you're right, that it doesn't seem like they're— well, they're not levying this accusation against Jesus directly. They're speaking about him in the third person, and I think— the way in which he has to call them to himself in order to deal with the word that they're spreading about him, that he's casting out demons by the power of demons, um, suggests that uh, it's, it's rather that Jesus knows what they're saying about him, even though they haven't said it directly, explicitly to him. So he has to call them to himself, and then he takes their accusation head on and exposes the the logical fallacy of what they're accusing him of. Because no one no one in the crowd believes that Jesus is not exercising authority over demons. That's been one of the reasons that, that the crowd has marveled uh, since the beginning. And we have his quite literal driving out of demons um, that's happened earlier, uh, in fact, back in chapter 1, um, it happens there uh, in the synagogue in Capernaum, and immediately there in the synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. So whoever was in the synagogue that day got to witness firsthand Jesus driving out this demon who had accused him of being uh, the Holy One of God. What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? So the demons get it. Uh, what Jesus says here in a second. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Um, it, it doesn't make any sense, because what Jesus is, is doing, he's engaging in warfare. And if, if Satan is fighting against himself, if, if Satan were, were driving back his own demonic forces, then he's, he's defeating himself. There's, there's no logical reason why Satan would be driving out demons. So, 
noteworthy is the fact that the scribes even acknowledge in their accusation that Jesus is driving out demons. They acknowledge that he has the authority to drive out demons. Well, from whom would that authority come? It could either come from someone higher up in the ranks of demons. By Beelzebul, he casts out demons. Um, or it could come from, as Jesus will say in a second, the stronger man who alone is able to bind the strong man and plunder his house. But that's the logic behind verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. So why would Satan rise up against himself? Why would Satan be, be fighting against his own aim to, to possess people to undo the coming kingdom of God or to thwart the coming reign of God in the person of Jesus by driving out demons? He just, he wouldn't. Um, it's logically inconsistent um, that, that the driving out of demons that Jesus does would be done by any other power than by the power and authority of, of God inaugurating his kingdom, beginning his rule, breaking into the devil's reign in his creation. And so that's, that's what he's doing. And then Jesus... Uh, He's answering them in, in parables, and these are each sort of just little um, short, we, we think uh, of them more sort of like maxims, but so now we understand the word parable is bigger than sort of the longer stories that Jesus will get into in chapter 4, um, but sort of logically teasing out the point that what he does could not be by the power of Satan. And then he'll introduce himself as the stronger man, the only one able to enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods. Mm. And he does so by means of binding the strong man. Mm. So what are, you're going to ask, who's the strong man? Well, that's the one who was holding creation captive. That is, that's the power of Satan. He holds God's creation in the bondage of sin. What are his goods? Well, it's everything then. It's people who are held captive in their sin. It's people who are, who are in fact, possessed by demons. Um, it's people who are held captive by, by the power of their own sinful flesh. All these things conspire against um, the, the reign, the rule of God, are united against the will and the word of God. And so, how will Jesus undo the strong man, Satan's power? Well, he does so by binding him. And let's let's and, pick that up. Let's pick up that binding of the strong man on the other side of the break, Pastor Himmer. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 26th. We're studying Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus' answer to the accusations that were made against him by the scribes. And you pointed out how Jesus starts by simply saying, look, this argument, this accusation is just ridiculous. If Satan is casting out Satan, then he's divided against himself. His house is coming to an end. In fact, Satan is not divided against himself. As we've seen already in the Gospels, he is quite united in his attempt to overthrow the reign and the rule of God that is coming into creation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Satan has been doing that since the very beginning. We hear of his work to undo the good that God has done already in the book of Genesis. And so what is needed is this strong man, a stronger man, to bind Satan, who is a strong man himself. That's where we left off on the other side of the break. You were talking about how Jesus is the stronger man who binds Satan in order to plunder his goods. Keep going with how does Jesus bind Satan in order to plunder his goods? Yeah, so the, the Jesus being the stronger man, um, that phrase doesn't, doesn't emerge here in his own catechesis, but that phrase comes from the prophecy of St. John the Baptist back in chapter 1, who said that the stronger one is coming. Um, I think the ESV translates it, the one who comes after me is is mightier than I, um, but the stronger man is coming. And that's, that's the message of John the Baptist, the one whose sandals he's not even worthy to touch. And so Jesus now takes up that, that question of, of strength, um, and it's, it's strength by means of, of the word that he speaks. That, that is the instrument by which he binds Satan. He, he holds Satan captive with, with merely a word, not unlike what, what we sing in uh, um, A Mighty Fortress. One little word can fell him. Well, the, the word that, that topples Satan's regime is is the word of Jesus, any word that Jesus speaks. And so when when he drove out the, the demons um, back in chapter 1, he rebukes the demons saying, be silent, come out. And what does the, what does the demon do? It obeys him. It does exactly what he says. When he speaks to the, the paralytic, um, and he says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Um, what, what is the strength by which he forgives that man's sins, and then later demonstrates that he has authority to forgive sins? It's in his word. So with his word, he heals 
uh, he, he forgives sins, and he heals paralysis. So that's the strength of Jesus to bind Satan is in, is in his word. And it's not, um, I mean, I, I don't want to uh, neglect the fact that it, it is very much a fight, um, and, and it's uh, not like, I don't know, not, not to diminish the fight by saying that the strength is in his word, but rather to emphasize the fact that, that his word still stands. The strength by which Jesus undoes the power of the strong man, drives out demons, forgives sins, proclaims the, the reign, his own reign, his kingdom, wherever he goes, raises the dead, heals the sick, proclaims the gospel, that same word endures today in his church. So that's, that's what... You know, Luther is confessing in that hymn, one little word can fell the devil. It's the, it's the word, God in flesh, and the word that, that Jesus, the incarnate word, speaks is the word that's able still today to bind the devil, to forgive sins, to speak the presence of Jesus into, into bread and wine, um, to proclaim the gospel with the authority of Jesus, to say, Thus saith the Lord. Um, to, to bind the devil and to plunder his kingdom with the words of baptism, right? It's not just ordinary water, but it's the water included in God's command, that's a word, and combined with God's word, his command word, his promise word. It's his word that, that binds the devil, destroys his, pow his power, topples his his towers, ransacks his kingdom, plunders it. That's, that's, Jesus' word is, is, that he uses here is violent. Um, he binds the strong man, he plunders his goods. Once he binds him, then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's what Jesus wants to do to the devil, is, is rob him of all of his power, bind him completely with his word, eventually on the day of his return, uh, with a word, he will lock the devil eternally in hell. Jesus alone holds the, the keys to death and hell. He'll say, um, he'll promise in the book of Revelation, eventually he'll lock the devil there, stripping him of all of his power completely, and rob him, just plunder his house, completely ransack it, take away everything that he wants. Um, and what does he want? He wants people. He wants God's elect. He wants to rob those whom God has chosen, to whom he has given his gift of faith, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life. He wants to rob them from God. He wants to keep them safe and secure in his own kingdom, and that is keep them out of God's possession. So Jesus' work, his, his fight against the devil, he does so by his word, is to plunder the house of the strong man. And now this, this takes us back. We, we've had this language of house um, just a couple of verses earlier. So is what, is, what does Satan have? Is it a kingdom? Is it a house? Well, Jesus is working with both illustrations. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself. Satan has a kingdom, but it's also 
this familial kind of dwelling. It is his house, and so the only one who can find the strong man and plunder his house is the stronger one, Jesus. Jesus then moves from there. He's confessed himself to be the stronger man who will plunder Satan, the strong man. He's still doing that today in his word preached in the church. And he moves from there in verse 28 to the matter of sins being forgiven. He talks about blasphemies, and then he moves very specifically to the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that that sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness. It is an eternal sin, a verse that has often caused some Christians trouble over the years. Have I committed to this sin? Pastor Hammer, how does Jesus make this move into this part of the text? What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And if I'm worried that I've committed that sin, well, what what should I do? So it's, it's noteworthy that Jesus moves right into this talk about Sin and forgiveness and blasphemy and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit immediately following the accusation of the scribes that Jesus drives out demons by by the prince of demons, by Beelzebul, that he, he is possessed by Satan. Well, what they have done against Jesus is blasphemy. They have they have not acknowledged his name, right, the second commandment, um, all about the name of God. Blasphemy is is sort of a, a misusing the name of God, using it incorrectly, not using it correctly. So blasphemy then, um, but it's also it's also a, a first commandment issue, not not to ascribe lordship properly to the one true God. Um, And as that plays out by misnaming God or misusing the name of God, it's sort of a particular kind of blasphemy. But they they have done both of those against Jesus. They have accused God of being in league with Satan. They have denied Jesus, who he is, as the second person of the one true triune God, by their, by their own accusation. It seems like what they say is, is more evil or, or deserves a harsher rebuke than simply uh, Jesus' family trying to write him off as, as someone who uh, is, is out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's saying, um, just off his rocker. So Jesus then moves right into talk about sin and what sins could be forgiven. Because they're obvious, the scribes with their accusation against Jesus are obviously wrong. Satan is not in league with Satan. So can what they have just spoken be forgiven? Can the unbelief of those who hear and believe the words of the scribes, can that be forgiven? Can, can even his, his family's rejection of him can that be forgiven? And so Jesus sort of brings this all to its culmination when he says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. All of that is forgiven except, verse 29, whoever 
blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark returns us to the context of, of what Jesus is answering with verse 30, because they were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. So what the scribes are doing, Mark says, is an example of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what, is, what does that mean? Um, well, to be clear, it is, it's against the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not just blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but, but it is intentionally against the Holy Spirit. Well, what, what does that mean to sin against the Holy Spirit? Well, what do we what do we confess about the Holy Spirit? Um, no one could say Jesus is Lord. Saint Paul says, except by the Holy Spirit. The Catechism, uh, riffing on this, says, "I believe I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to Him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the Gospel, enlightened me with His gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith." And in the same way, he does, he does all that for the whole church. So the work of the Holy Spirit is to give faith, to bring us to Jesus. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is rejection of his work to give faith. Or you might say more succinctly, the sin against the Holy Spirit is unbelief. So that's, that's exactly what these scribes are demonstrating, and it's, it's, even for them it's, it's more than just unbelief, it is anti-faith. It is a rejection of Jesus because of the work that he does. The work that he does, driving out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, they cannot abide with that, and so they sin against the Holy Spirit by rejecting Jesus by refusing to believe in him as, as the promised Messiah, the incarnate second person of the Trinity. So you ask, should I be worried that maybe I have committed this uh, elsewhere in Scripture, an unpardonable sin? Um, the writer of Hebrews takes up a, a similar question in chapter 10. Um, what, what sin could be unforgivable? Well, if we understand that the sin against the Holy Spirit is unbelief, then that means it is, it's a rejection of what Jesus does on the cross in order to f forgive all sins. And that's how 28 and 29 fit together. Jesus is not saying that there is some category of sin that's bigger than his death on the cross. All sins will be forgiven, as if, as if he were saying, all sins will be forgiven except this one great big sin that is outside the power of God to forgive, that's bigger than my eventual death on the cross to win forgiveness for all people for all sins. Um, he's not saying that. The death of the, the God-man Jesus is sufficient to pay for all sins. The question then is not, have you sinned bigger than the death of Jesus? The question is, are you with Jesus? Or are you in Jesus? He's not in league with Satan. He is, he is 
possessed by the Spirit. He possesses the Spirit. And those who are in him and with him have the same Holy Spirit to deliver to them his gift of faith. That's, that's why the sin against the Holy Spirit is, is not forgiven, because it's a rejection of the forgiveness God gives because of Jesus' death on the cross. It's a rejection of, of the fact that, he, that, that his death on the cross forgives all the world's sins, pays for all the world's sins, but to reject the Holy Spirit's gift of faith, which is not, faith is not just knowledge about who Jesus is, um, it also encompasses a trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And when that trust is absent, and it could only be there by the work of the Holy Spirit, right? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him but the Holy Spirit. So sin against the Holy Spirit is rejection of his work to cause us to trust in Jesus for forgiveness. That's why it's unforgivable, because it wants to hold ourselves outside of the full and free forgiveness that Jesus offers, that he wins on the cross. So if, if anyone would be scared that, that maybe he's done something that would be unforgivable, have I, have I sinned um, in such a way, have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? If, you can, if that even uh, gives you concern then that concern itself is proof that the Holy Spirit is still using the Word of God to give us the, you know, the, the fear component of faith. That we could fear that God would punish us for what we have done is proof that the Holy Spirit is still working in us. So anyone who could ask that question, have I committed the unpardonable sin, certainly has not. Um, because once... Once you have rejected faith to the point where you are in league with these scribes who only want to see Jesus dead, who won't be persuaded by his miracles, by the authority of his teaching, by his raising the dead. In fact, raising the dead will make them want to kill Jesus even more. They don't care that he accuses them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This doesn't uh, prick their consciences and cause them you know, guilt pangs that Jesus says every other sin will be forgiven except the ones that you are doing right now by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, by rejecting his call to faith in me, they don't care. So if we care, um, then that's proof that we have not, we've not rejected the Holy Spirit's work in us to such a point that finally he has, he has given us over to our sinful desires. Very well said. It's not, it's not that there's one category of sin that Jesus didn't die for. It's that we need faith in him to receive the forgiveness that he wins on the cross, and rejecting the Spirit's gift of faith is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Yeah, very, very well said on, on, a, on a passage that is sometimes misunderstood. I do think that of the synoptics, the way Mark puts that extra editorial comment in verse 30 about what it was that they were doing. That's such a helpful comment there that helps explain that as you laid out for us and, and to give comfort to the troubled consciences that, that in Christ, there is no category of sin that is, that is unforgiven. His, his death is big enough 
to forgive all. Now, Mark, as we said earlier, sandwiches this story in between accounts concerning Jesus' family. They come back into view. Remember those those folks who were saying Jesus is out of his mind? Well, how do they fit in? And, and having seen this very negative picture of what it means to reject Jesus, what does it mean to to trust Jesus? Where does that confession of Jesus as Lord fit in? That's where Mark's going to draw these things together in these last few verses of the text. We've got about seven minutes here, Pastor Hammer. So Jesus' mother and brothers are specifically mentioned here now. They're standing outside calling to Jesus. There's a crowd sitting around Jesus. And Jesus is going to make a point here about who his mother, brothers, sisters actually are. Take us into this last part of our text. So notice notice the location of all the different actors in this uh, short little story. So his mother and his brothers come. Jesus' family now comes, and some of them are, are identified more particularly than just generally in 21, his family. But where are they? Well, they're standing outside, not, not in the crowd. Now, that's the second... Um, group we encounter. So you have this uh, Jesus family outside on the fringe, and the crowd is around Jesus, and they are there to hear the word of God. And his family comes, his mother and his brothers come, in order for Jesus to hear their words. So they are outside seeking you, desiring you to come out to them, not immersing themselves in the crowd of those gathered to hear the word of God. So it's, it's again, a very negative picture of Jesus' family trying to order him around, remaining outside the company of those who are gathered to hear his word. And so it's not even a rebuke against his family. It's rather an encouragement to those who are hearing the word of God when, in verse 33, he answers the crowd saying, Who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking around, he says, Here's my family. Whoever does the will of God, he is my family, my brother and sister and mother. And what is the will of God? The will of God is that we be hearers of the word. Um, The will of God is that the Holy Spirit would work in us his gift of faith. The will of God is that the Spirit would preserve us in that community of people gathered around God's word and his instruments of grace, the means by which he brings us into that community, the means by which he keeps us in that community, guards and and protects the faith that the Spirit has worked in us and is preserving in us. That's the will of God. Not that we be on the outside having some familial connection to Jesus, um, right? Faith is not genetic. Um, No one no one dies and goes to heaven uh, because his parents had faith. Um, but the will of God is that we be brought into this family relationship with Jesus by means of rebirth in his church, by means of the waters of baptism, that we would, just like Jesus, be made sons and daughters of God 
in, in the womb of the baptismal font, be given this, this rebirth so that we might have Jesus as our brother. And there, in the company of our brothers and sisters in faith, we are doing the will of God. And at the top of the list of things that God wills for his people to do is to be hearing the word, to be immersed in the word. And so here, here's the crowd gathered around Jesus, um, a little bit out of their own minds, so enraptured with the word that, that they're not even eating um, or giving Jesus and his apostles time to break for a meal. They're just so, uh, I mean, they are, they are gorging themselves on the word. Um, they want every word that comes from the mouth of God. They know man does not live by bread alone, but Jesus has something richer, a food that endures beyond the grave, and that, that's what's pouring forth from his lips. It's why they're there to hear the word of God. And so it's not unlike uh, when, when someone, I think it's in St. Luke's account of the gospel, uh, someone wants to praise Mary, the mother of, of Jesus, for what she does for God. When, when someone in the crowd, a woman in the crowd says, blessed uh, is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus uh, deflects the praise from the organs of Mary's body that gave something to Jesus and redirects them to the organs of Mary's body that received something from Jesus. When he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God, right? That's, God doesn't care what you do for him. He doesn't care what, what you bring to the table, um, except your ears, the most, the most passive organ in your body, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God. Um, so Mary is blessed, but not for what she does to Jesus, but in her hearing and receiving the word of God. Well, that takes you back all the way to the angel Gabriel's visit to her, and she says, let it be unto me according to your word. So same thing here in Mark's account of the gospel. He directs attention away from whatever blood ties his family may have to Jesus and directs them to the water, which is stronger than blood, the water of baptism, which binds, binds us together all as brothers and sisters of Christ in the hearing and the doing of the word of God. Pastor Jeff Himmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, helping us today with Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Pastor Himmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's a pleasure as always. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions for us on Sharper Iron about this text, about the gospel according to St. Mark, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Talk to you again tomorrow.